Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 33. Paul says, This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. <clears throat> Excuse me, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, Paul starts off verse 22 by saying, this is why. He said, this is why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. So what is why? What has hindered Paul from being able to go visit the church there in Rome? Well, the previous verses just told us that. Go back to verse 20 and 21. Paul had just said, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Since Paul was writing to the church in Rome, that means the gospel had already been preached there, correct? His desire was to go where the gospel hadn't been preached yet in the beginning of the ministry that he had. And so because of that call on his life and to go preach where the gospel hadn't been fully proclaimed yet, he knew that Rome was a place that had had the gospel. And you're going to see when we get to our last study at the end of uh, our study of Romans, when he starts writing and saying hi to this person and that person, you'll see that the church was pretty, pretty established there in Rome. So because of the fact that he still had a desire to go preach where the gospel really hadn't made it as much, Rome and visiting the Christians there in Rome wasn't high on his list right away because he had other places he wanted to go. But now he still desired to go and minister to them. Any idea why? We looked at it last week. Because they had so many what in the church? Gentiles. Remember his passion and his call from God was to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Look at verses uh, 1 through 15. I remind you of what we, what we looked at at the very beginning of our study. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and the apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, 
that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So here at the beginning of his letter, he had already told them what he's saying here. I've been wanting to come see you, but the call in my life and God's plan for my life has made it so that I've been hindered from coming. But I know that I'm going to hopefully be able to come see you. And that's my plan. But before I get to you, because I'm going to be going to see you on the way to Spain, that's my plan. I have to go to Jerusalem first. He just said that in our section. Paul had so far been prevented or hindered from going to visit them. Let me ask you a quick question. Who is hindering, and be careful that you don't answer too quick. Who is hindering Paul from going to Rome at, the, at this present? Very good answer. You're right. The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is keeping him. Because as much as Paul and his flesh wanted to go, he knew that the Spirit said, you got a little more work to do before you get there. You got a few more things you got to accomplish before you get there. Understand this wrestling match that all of us need to understand is that we have desires and they're even God-given desires, but we must wait upon the Spirit of God as to the when that those desires will be fulfilled. We have a tendency to say, well, if it's in your heart, go do it. Well, and I could even show you Old Testament passages where prophets said, if it's in your heart, go do it. But I could show you another one where Nathan the prophet, when David says, I want to build you a temple, God, I want to build God a temple. Nathan says, what's in your heart? Go do it. And then God comes to Nathan that night and says, hey, I, I, I didn't say that. You have to go back and tell David, no, you're not the one I chose. Go to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Look at verses 6 through 10. In Acts 16, we see Paul and his traveling entourage at the time. They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Paul knew how to make plans, but let the Holy Spirit direct his plans. Do you understand what I'm saying? The Bible teaches that we are to be making plans. We're to study the ant. We're to learn from the ant who prepares and makes plans. But we should never let our plans supersede the Holy Spirit's guidance. He's going to use our plans and shape and guide us. Go to Proverbs chapter 16 and look at verse 9. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9. says, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Let me give you a good example of what I'm talking about in the life of Paul. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And look at verses 5 through 9. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 5 through 9. Paul's writing to the church there in Corinth and he says, 
I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So Paul says to them, I want to come see you, but I don't want it to be a quick visit. I want to spend a little bit of time there. I might even spend the winter with you. And there are some things I want you guys to bless me in and as I bless you. But at the same time, right now I'm supposed to stay where I'm at because God's opened a wide door for service for me, even though there's opposition. It's obvious that God's opened a door for me. Jump over to 2 Corinthians and look at chapter 2. Same guy writing. Same, he's writing to the same group of people. But listen to what he says in chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Isn't that interesting? We've been taught if God opens a door, you're to walk through it. No, not always. Sometimes God will open a door and it'll be a test as to whether or not you're going to listen to the still small voice. We should make our plans. But we should be learning how to recognize when the Spirit of God gives us peace or no peace. That what I call sometimes the check in the Spirit when you're about to do something, the Spirit said no or not, not yet. Or the peace that actually passes understanding. And even though you don't know why, and it looks crazy, but you feel like God said yes and we're going to go do it anyway. That's what we're learning how to do. And Paul made his plans, as we see very clearly, he had plans, but he at the same time let the Holy Spirit show him specifically the when and the how of those plans. By the way, he wasn't the only one that lived like this. Go to Acts chapter 8. Look at verses 26 through 40. You're going to notice that Philip is also being led of the Spirit. If, as you're going to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26, um, if you know the backstory, Philip has been, because of the persecution of Stephen and the stoning of Stephen, he's been scattered and he ends up in Samaria. And God uses him mightily. A revival breaks out in Samaria. And in the midst of the revival, look at what the Holy Spirit says to Philip. In verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come from, to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and he asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So in the midst of the revival that God has used Philip in, 
and, and there in Samaria, the Spirit of God says, I want you to leave there in the midst of the revival and head down a desert road. But as he's heading toward the direction that the Spirit told him to go, heading toward Gaza, the Spirit then speaks to him and says, go over to the chariot. And when he goes over to the chariot, he sees that God set up this appointment for him. The man gets saved. And when he baptizes him, next thing you know, whoop, he's gone. He finds himself in Azotus. By the way, you'll see this all through the scriptures. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus gets up early in the morning, goes off to pray. The disciples go looking for him. They find him. They said, there's a group of people all looking to see you. And Jesus said, it's time to go to the next town. Be careful of using the whole open door, closed door as to whether or not that's what you're supposed to do. No, be looking for where God's at work, yet at the same time, be listening to the Spirit. And even though Paul said, God's opened a door for me, and even in the midst of adversaries, I'm supposed to stay, he then said, even though a door had opened in the Lord, I didn't have peace. My spirit wasn't at rest, and so I didn't stay. And we need to know how to do this. So did Paul have a desire to go to Rome and to see the church in Rome? Very much so. Did he actually was wanting to go encourage them and have them encourage him, and then he was going to go on to Spain. That was his plan. Yet... He also knew that he had been collecting this offering for the saints and the poor saints in Jerusalem, and he had to go deliver that offering first. So he writes to him and he says, here are my plans. Lord willing, this is how it's going to work out. Oh, and by the way, when we get to our next study, our next book study in the book of James, I think you'll see James say the same thing. Don't say tomorrow or today we're going to do such and such. Say what? If the Lord wills. Make the plans, but let the Lord Show you the when and the how. Go ahead, Warren. I forget, did Paul ever make it to Spain? We are going to deal with that question next week. That is, we're going to spend all of next week's study dealing with, did Paul ever make it to Rome and did Paul ever make it to Spain? That is what we're going to deal with next week. But I'm not going to answer it now. Yes, ma'am, go ahead. Sometimes too, and this is something I struggle with mm -hmm. in the midst of, you know, making plans and you're moving forward, you've asked for peace along the way, and he'll close those doors or open them. There's also stinking thinking that goes along. Oh, yeah. Satan will definitely try to discourage us. He'll be the adversary to stop us, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and so you have to have that spirit of discernment to just really be able to say, okay. Get a hold of this. Yes. You know, and have that relationship with the Holy Spirit, with God. And I would agree. And for those of you that can't hear online, she's saying in the midst of all of this, as we try to follow the Lord, we have our plans, we listen to the Spirit. Sometimes the enemy comes to whisper to us and give us bad thoughts and whatever. This is why it's not only important to know what the Spirit has, fear, but that's why we need brothers and sisters that also know how to walk in the Spirit. Not brothers and sisters that will say, follow your plan but brothers and sisters that can come alongside of you and say, what did God say? I know it doesn't look like it. By the way, you're getting me to try to preach next week's lesson, and I can't. But you're going to see this all play out next week as we deal with, did Paul ever make it to Rome? I'm going to give you a little short answer. Yes, he does make it to Rome, but it's going to blow your mind how he ended up in Rome, and you're going to be surprised at how many times it looks like he's never going to make it to Rome. So I know what you're saying. And that's why we need to know what the Spirit of God and what His Word has said. And we need brothers and sisters who can come alongside of us in the midst of that and say, keep going. Well, even more importantly than brothers and sisters, you need to have the relationship with the Holy Spirit. Yes. Well, that's, I said, that's what I said first. We need that. And we also, because He's designed us to help each other do this. Go now and, and take a look back at Romans 15 again, though. 
Paul's plan was to go to Spain, and he wanted to stop in Rome and visit the church there on his way. He also wanted them to help him on his journey to Spain. Go back and take a look at what he says here. He says, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Now, what kind of help do you think Paul was wanting from them? And it's more than just one thing. Financial, spiritual, and I also think there's a hint here at the same time of guidance. Roman roads were being built, as you know, or had been built for years and now had been built. And there were probably those people who could help guide him on his way to Spain as well. And that's part of his journeys. You'll notice when Paul took trips, he knew roughly where God was leading him. But how he was going to get there was kind of laid out as he went. Oh, here I'm going to get on a boat. Here we're going to have some stay at someone's house for a while. Then they're going to take us on the rest of the journey. But financial is a big part of it as well. Uh, Some people are called to go. Not everybody's called to go. But some are called to go. And some are called to fund the going. Y'all ever noticed most of the time, and if you know of anybody that's on the mission field, chances are the people that God called on the mission field didn't have a big money bank account to go live off of to go on the mission field. He usually called the ones who didn't have anything and they have to raise support and they have to start contacting brothers and sisters and say, hey, God's called us to go, but we can't go unless you can help us go. There are those of us who have been called to go. There are those of us who have been called to support and fund the going. Go to Luke chapter 8. You may be surprised at who God uses sometimes. We just assume it's the rich person. Not always. He does use them as well, but not always. Look at Luke chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, soon afterward, he, this is Jesus, went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Isn't that interesting? Some of the support for Jesus and his disciples on their travel was being done, taken care of by women. And if you know anything about the culture of that day, it was a rare thing for a woman to have money. But God used these women who traveled with them to support their travels. Paul was going from Corinth back to Jerusalem first because he was delivering a financial love gift that he had collected for the poor Jews in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church. This was a love gift from their Gentile brothers and sisters. The gift was coming from where? You already read it there in Romans 15. Take a look again at verse 25. Where's the gift coming from? Macedonia and where? And Achaia. Very good. Look at verse 25. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a quick little study about the sections of Scripture where Paul talked about this offering that had been and was being collected. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, where it just kind of sets the stage. That was Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He lets them know that what God was doing there had already spread in Macedonia and Achaia. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 8. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mention you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that's faith, hope, and love, the three things that remain. 
For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. And then he goes on and talks about how they had heard how they believed in the Lord and were waiting for his return. So he was saying, look, the gospel has the word of what God's doing there has actually made it into Macedonia and Achaia. Go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 again. That passage we looked at earlier, but a little bit earlier. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit Credit it by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they'll accompany me. All right, so does anybody know where Corinth is? This is written to the church in Corinth. Does anybody know where Corinth is? It's in Achaia. As we know, he's been going to Macedonia and Achaia. Remember remember we saw in Acts 16, he wanted to go into Asia with the Spirit, wouldn't let him, wanted to go into Mysia, the Spirit said no. And then he found out through the vision that God wanted him to go to Macedonia. The first convert in Europe was in Macedonia, a woman named Lydia. And the gospel began to spread that area. Then he went down to Achaia, and Corinth is in Achaia. And he's writing now to the church in Corinth, and he says, Look, I want you guys to start collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but when the Jews became believers in Jesus Christ, they lost everything. They were kicked out of the synagogue. Their families rejected them. They weren't able to go to temple. They, they lost everything. They lost their position, their, their prestige, their jobs, and they became destitute. But God provided for them as the early church shared. And when anybody had anything and, and the others needed, they shared it, and it was a wonderful thing. But Paul, knowing what was going on in Jerusalem because of his heart for the Jews, was now spreading the gospel to the Gentile believers and he was collecting love offerings from all of them for to be taken back to Jerusalem. And he says, and if it need be that I go with the offering, I'll go with it too. By the way, do you all know that that's what part of what God does with the money you set aside every week and give in your offering to your church? When you give your tithes and your offerings to your local church, some of that money goes to take care of the electric bills and the salaries for the pastors and stuff. But other monies go to missionary work around the globe. Others go to Benevolent needs and those who are in need. Folks, when you give, you're giving to more than you realize. And let me just say something real quick from someone who's been a pastor. Once you give it, leave it alone. It's not a gift if you control it after you gave it. That's not a gift. You give it and, well, what if they're spending it wrong? That's between them and God. I gave my gift. And if they want to take whatever money Becky and I gave and throw it out on the street and let the wind blow it away, they're free to do that. Well, Jim, that's not the best use of your money. You don't understand. It's no longer my money. I gave it where God told me to give it, and you leave it alone. I'm just going to leave it at that. I want to preach on that for the rest of tonight, but I'm going to stop. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
Look at verses 1 through 15. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity in their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means because of their own accord, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in, all, in our love for you, see that you also excel in this act of grace as well. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by you, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. And there may be fairness as it is written, whoever, gath whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. So he's writing to them and he says, look, you began to take this offering. Make sure you finish. And let me just encourage you with the attitude of the Macedonian churches in their poverty. They overjoyfully gave not only to the Lord, but also to us. And they wanted to support. And I'm not going to command you to do it. I'm just wanting you to prayerfully consider how God may use you to bless others. Now, jump over to chapter nine of Second Corinthians and look at verses one through 15. Now, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we'd be humiliated. To say nothing of you for being so confident, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the mystery of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. 
while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He says to him, he says, look, I've already told you to set money aside. And I want to remind you that the collection day is coming up. And you already said you would. And I've been telling everybody you would. I'm going to send a couple of guys ahead of time just to make sure you're ready so that when we do show up to collect it, we're not embarrassed and you're not embarrassed. Especially if some Macedonians happen to come with us and you guys act like you're not ready. But let me also say this. I don't want you to give anything under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. But let me tell you something about our God. If you are willing to generously give when he spurs your heart to do it, he'll multiply your ability to give more. And folks, I can tell you the honest truth. Our ministry has experienced this. My wife and and our family have experienced this. We've been privileged by God to support ministries and missionaries across the globe. And I won't tell you how many we support because it will shock and it will sound like we're bragging, but we're not. But let me tell you this much. We have heart for people in Kenya. We have a heart for people in North Dakota. We have a heart for people in Thailand. We have a heart for people all, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Because we have a heart and we have been giving our money toward these things, and we pray for these people, and God is knitting us all together. I got a report today from missionaries that we support that go to India, and they also go over to Africa, and they also go to Indian reservations, and we support the seafarers ministry in this area, and more than one. And, and let me just say this to you. By doing this, God has blessed us to be able to give more. Every year when we look over our budget, we're like, where else can we give? And we add to what we've been given. And and God blesses, but at the same time, it knits us together with all these people when we get our reports and we get emails and letters and when we get to travel and see some of these people. And Paul says, when you guys join together like that, you'll be knit together. And God is trying to knit together Gentiles with the Jerusalem church, which is mostly Jews. Isn't that kind of cool? Actually, if you don't have time to go there tonight, but if you go back and look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, the section where Paul said the church in Jerusalem realized that Paul had been told to go to the Gentiles and Peter the Jews, they added one stipulation. Only remember the poor wherever you go. Remember the poor. Now look at verse 27, though, of Romans 15. Look at verse 27. He says, For they were pleased to do it, the people in Macedonia, the Gentiles in Macedonia and Achaia, they were pleased to make a contribution for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And indeed, they owe it to them. We're going to go somewhere here now. Listen to what's said next. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, the Jews' spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Isn't that interesting? He actually said, he said, look, They not only were glad to do it, they kind of owe it to them. Because as we looked at last time we met together, last week we saw that how God has all the promises for Israel are ours now. All the blessings for Israel are, are available to the Gentiles. And if we share in their spiritual blessings, he then says you should also share with them material blessings. Paul said that since the Gentiles were getting to share in their blessings, they should share the material blessings. Christians should be blessing Israel right now. Not just praying for them. 
but giving toward things for the nation of Israel. There are many ministries out there, and I'm not going to tell you which one to give to, but I'm going to give you one just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. You can Google it. It's called the Joshua Fund. Joel Rosenberg, who wrote a lot of the books that many of you have probably read, has started this ministry, and he lives in Israel now. There are many others, Jews for Jesus and others. The Bible says that since we have been grafted in and we have been sharing in their blessings, we owe it to them to share material blessings with them. And so I just want you to begin to pray about how you may be not only praying for Israel, but supporting Israel financially. But do you know that this truth actually applies also in the church? I'm going to do something tonight. I'm going to do it as quick as I can because I don't want to seem self-serving. But I want to be faithful to teach you the whole of Scripture. The Bible actually also teaches that if individuals in the church have actually shared with you spiritual blessings, you are to take care of them financially and share with them your material blessings. Go back to 1 Corinthians 9. Go to 1 Corinthians 9. Look at verses 1 through 18. Paul has to defend himself because people were accusing him of being in it for the money. And so to prove that he wasn't in it for the money, he didn't take an offering. He didn't take a, he didn't take a pay a salary. Look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 18. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, for, is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me, Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, for I do this of, of my own will, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Folks, this is the right balance that preachers should have. They should never be in it for the money. Yet, the people who receive the blessings from the preachers should have the attitude of saying, we want to make sure our preacher is taken well care of financially. That's how it should work. 
The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter writes to the other elders as a fellow elder, he says, shepherd God's flock that's under your care. And, and don't do it under compulsion, but willingly. Not lording your authority over those entrusted to you. And don't be in it for the money. Unfortunately, there's a lot of preachers out there that'll say, I'll come and speak, but you've got to give me the certain kind of rental car, the certain type of hotel, and the certain fee. Just the preacher ministries will come free of charge. We're never going to say, if you give money, we'll bring you the gospel. No, we're going to come and teach and preach the word of God free of charge. But let me also say this to you as well. The Bible also says, though, the attitude of those receiving the spiritual blessings should be, we want to make sure that they're taken care of materially. So I pray that your churches and your pastors feel well taken care of. As you've heard me say too often, there's been a running joke for years where the preachers, the churches will pray, Lord, send us a poor, humble preacher. Lord, you keep him humble, we'll keep him poor. Go to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. Look at verses 17 and 18. I've heard too many churches say, well, we're going to make sure that the pastors prayed, commensurate with what other salaries are in the area. That's not what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So we now know putting this context with 1 Corinthians in, 1 Corinthians 9 together, was that passage talking about money? Yes, it was talking about money. It wasn't mean that you just give your pastor a special parking space but that you make sure he's financially taken care of. So we're just going to leave it at that. Paul said, look, the Gentiles owe it to the Jews to share their material blessings with them because they've received spiritual blessings. In the same way, if you're in a church, make sure that your material blessings are being shared with those who have blessed you spiritually. Now, Paul then asked for prayer from the church in Rome. Now, this next section that I'm going to read to you will be very, very important in our study next week. Go back to Romans 15. We'll look closely at what he prays, and we're going to deal next week in great detail with, was this prayer answered? All right. Romans 15. Look at verses. We'll just start in verse 30. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Here's what I want you to pray with me and for, Paul said, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Paul says, I want you guys to pray for me because I know it's going to get bumpy when I go to Jerusalem. I'll deal with that more next week because I'm going to show you how Paul had already been told by the Holy Spirit that when he goes to Jerusalem, hardship and imprisonment were awaiting him. But even though he knew that that was going to be bumpy, he knew that the Spirit was telling him to go anyway. But he says, I pray, I want you to pray with me that I be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that I would be able to come to you guys refreshed and able to bless you the way I want to bless you and you can bless me that I hope you can bless me on my way to Spain. I'm going to also talk to you a little bit tonight about praying for your spiritual leaders. I've already talked to you about the fact that you should pay them well, but I'm going to also say to you, you need to also be praying for them. Go to Hebrews 13. Praying for your spiritual leaders is important and requested throughout the Bible. 
Hebrews 13, look at verses 17 through 19. The Hebrew writer says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. And then, of course, this one writes, I urge you also the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So again, we should not only make sure that they're taken care of financially and that they're not having to struggle materially, but we should also be praying for those in leadership over us. Why? The Bible says it'll be a benefit for you and an advantage. And folks, I've been in ministry long enough, not just myself, but I was actually a child of one of five kids of a dad who was a pastor. And unfortunately, I saw the opposite. Where every Sunday you'd hear the story about everybody going home to have roast preacher. Talk about the preacher and whether or not they like the message or all this kind of stuff. My kids will tell you my wife experienced it way more than my children have. Because praise the Lord I've been being set free from it a lot more as they got older. But when I started in ministry because of my being raised as one of five children of a child of a preacher. And being raised in the church. I dealt with that fishbowl so much that I had been taught to worry about what everybody else was thinking. Oh, and by the way, there's many in the church who aren't afraid to tell you what they're thinking. (laughs) And I unfortunately pastored that way for too long, more worried about keeping everybody happy and putting out the fires than serving the Lord and being there for my family. Well, I can tell you right now, your pastor struggles with this in some way or another. And if he says he doesn't, he's lying to you. But one thing that will be a blessing to them is not only that you encourage them, but that you pray for them. Because as you pray for somebody, your attitude toward them will change. God works on your heart and you start to see them as God does. And no longer will you see this person as this rascal who did this wrong or I didn't agree with that decision or I don't like this or that. But when you pray for those in authority over you, God's power is released. There's a unity and your attitude will change, and God's allowed to work. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You're going to see it again. First Thessalonians chapter 5, look at verse 25. In that whole section where they give all these instructions, in verse 25, Brothers, pray for us. Isn't that interesting? Brothers, pray for us. Let me ask you a quick question. Have you ever thought about how hard it is for those who are over you in the Lord and leadership in the church to actually fulfill the role that they've been given? Have you ever really stopped to consider what's expected of them and all that they deal with? They're just as human as you or I, just called to a different role. But a lot of people grow up with this mindset that the preacher's up on this pedestal and he's closer to God and he doesn't deal with the things I deal with. And he well, let me just say something to you as one. I struggle with all the same things you do and probably more. Because if you go bowling and you want to knock down all the pins, which pin do you aim for first? You go for the head pin, don't you? And Satan does the same thing. And you have no idea half of the stuff that pastors deal with. It was interesting when I was pastor here at First Baptist in the Atlantic, 
last church I pastored before I went into this traveling ministry. It's coming up on 17 years ago already now. Isn't that crazy? It's been 17 years. Isn't that crazy? here's, Here's something that happened, though. After having been gone for about six months from the pastorate here of this church, I stuck my head in the conference room one day when the rest of the pastors were having their, their staff meeting. And uh, I said, hey, guys, how's it going? And they said, hey, you got a minute? We need to talk to you. And I said, sure. So I came in and I sat in the board meeting with all the rest of the staff. And I said, what's going on? They said, we need to ask for your forgiveness. I said, why? They said, we used to sit in this conference room when you sat in the big chair at the end of the table and we were jealous of you. We used to think that you got the big salary and you got to preach most of the time and you got to make decisions and lead. And we were the underlings who didn't have to get all that privilege. And we couldn't wait for the day when we got to be the guy who sat in the big chair. And when God moved you and there was no senior pastor, we all had to step up and take over a lot of those things. And they said, we had no idea all the stuff you had to deal with. We were immune to it. And now we realize we don't want the big chair. If you're not called to the big chair, you should not sit in the big chair. Folks, pray for your pastors. I can promise you, they're going to make decisions you don't like. So did Jesus. But you just pray that they would do what God's calling them to do. And if God is telling you, leave them alone, that's my job, then you leave them alone, that's his job. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. Finally, brothers, there it is again. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord's faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. There it is again. It's not easy in this role. People see the public side of our ministry. They don't know the dealings we deal with in our own flesh. They don't know the dealings we deal with with the emails and the letters. The things that nobody else knows about. The fact that if you're pastoring a large group of people, there's all those different expectations of what the role of the pastor should be or what things should be going on in that church. And you have no idea what pastors deal with. And nor should you. But I can tell you this much. Make sure they're taken care of financially. And pray for them. And watch God work. Watch God work. By the way, leaders are also to pray for those in their care. Just as Jesus does for us. And the Holy Spirit does for us. I pray that your pastors are praying for you. God's been really speaking to me about that in this coming year. I'll tell you right now, the thing that God's wanting to do in Jim Johnson's life, there are many things, but one of the main things is that I would be less concerned about my comfort and more considerate of others. That's just one of the things he's talking to me about and that it manifests in different ways. Considering others first. And in doing so, I found him telling me to call people every now and then. Contact different folks, just out of the blue. Just make a little touch. Just simply to say, I'm thinking about you. Because not only should you be praying for your pastors, my prayer is your pastors are praying for you. Did you know Jesus prayed for you? 
about that for a minute. He even does now. But go to John 17. We've got time for this. Go to John 17. We're going to look at verses 9 through 11 and then verses 17 through 26. John chapter 17, starting in verse 9. Jesus is praying. He says, I'm praying for them. Talking about the 12 that he had been given there. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they're yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they're in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Jump down to verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus is praying for his disciples that are there, but not only for them, but also for those who would believe in Jesus through their message. That's us. And he prayed that we would be united in love, that we'd be united in him, and then listen to what he says. Father, I want those you've given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. In heaven. Then Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 say that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame. What is the joy set before Jesus? It's you and me. Jude chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, it says this Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you with great joy and without blemish and without fault. Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jesus' joy, His glory, is that we're going to one day be with Him face to face and experience his, his joy in His glory. And Jesus prayed for us. I pray that your leaders, maybe some of you are teachers. Some of you are Sunday school teachers. Some of you are pastors. Some of you who are listening right now might have a leadership of some, authority, of some sort, an authority of some sort. Pray for those who are under your authority. Let me give you one more passage. Go to Romans chapter 8. I got some good news for you. Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. It says, Likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Oh, and what's the will of God? We know that everything that He puts us through is going to work for His good, for the love of Him and called according to His purpose. Don't miss this. The Holy Spirit is already praying for you in accordance with the will of God. Too many of us have had this passage taught to us, and we've been told that if you're in a situation and you don't know how to pray, the Holy say, Holy Spirit, help me pray. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
But don't think that's the first time the Holy Spirit's going to be praying for you. Actually, all through the scriptures, you'll see Jesus praying for people before they even realized they needed it. When Jesus cried out on the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Were people saying, forgive us? No, they were saying, you're phony, you're fake. We don't believe you're who you say you are. And they weren't asking for forgiveness, but Jesus knew what they needed before they asked, and he was already praying for them in accordance with the will of the Father before they asked. Jesus said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, you're all going to go away. Peter says, ah, not me. He goes, actually, Satan asked to sift you as wheat, and I've already prayed for you. My prayer is that when you go through this trial, you won't quit. I don't need prayer. Yeah, you do. And I know what the Father's will is to have you go through this trial. It's to make you stronger, to realize your brokenness, to realize your weakness, so that later on you can strengthen your brothers, not just the church, but I'm going to send you to the Jews. And one day you're going to be able to preach to the nation of Israel and say, I know you crucified him, I know you rejected him, but I walked with him for three years. And when push came to shove, I acted like I didn't know him either. And he forgave me. He can forgive you. It's not going to be fun while you're in it, Peter, but I've got a purpose and it's good. And down the road, you're going to reap the blessings. Right now, you don't understand what I'm doing, but later you will. Folks, let me just encourage you today with the importance of resting in the fact that God has a plan and it's already in motion, has been before we came on this earth, and it'll finish after we leave here. He's got a full plan and it's all going to be worked out for his glory. But he asks each of us in the meantime to rest in him, to follow his words, to love each other, and trust that he will accomplish his purposes. Now, next week, we're going to deal with these two questions. We're going to go back and look over Romans 15, 22 through 33, but especially that prayer that he asked for them to pray for him. Did Paul ever make it to Rome? The short answer is yes. If you don't know the story, I can't wait to show it to you. We're going to go back and look at that whole journey to Jerusalem to give the love gift, and then what happened from there and for those of you that have never seen it, or maybe those who haven't even looked at it in a while, it is literally going to blow your mind at how many times it sure looked like he wasn't going to Rome, but God had made a promise. We're going to learn a lot next week about how to hang on to what God has said, even though things don't look like it, like you had talked about earlier, Sheila. But we're also going to deal with, did he make it to Spain? And I give no commercials. You've got to come back next week. I love you. We'll see you then.